0: You have your Bibles, please go with me to First Corinthians chapter ten. I want to pray for us first this morning from the Valley of Vision? You bow your heads with me. Father, thou art the blessed God, happy in thyself, source of happiness in thy creatures, my maker, my benefactor, my proprietor, my upholder. You have produced and sustained me, supported and indulged me, saved and kept me. You are in every situation able to meet my needs and my miseries. May I live by you, live for you, never be satisfied with my Christian progress, but as I resemble Christ. And may conformity to his principles, his temper, and his conduct grow hourly in my life. Let your unexampled love constrain me into holy obedience and render my duty my delight. If others deem my faith folly, my meekness infirmity, my zeal madness, my hope delusion, my actions hypocrisy, then may I rejoice to suffer for your name. Keep me walking steadfastly towards the country of everlasting delights that paradise land which is my true inheritance. Support me by the strength of heaven that I may never turn back or desire false pleasures that will disappear into nothing. As I pursue my heavenly journey by your grace, let me be known as a man with no aim but that of a burning desire for you and the good and salvation of my fellow men. Amen. question for you today is, when is the last time that you felt truly rested? When's the last time that you felt truly rested? We are in the season of vacation right now. I've already been able to take like one and a half, uh, and it's been really delightful. Most of us, I think, look forward to vacation oftentimes as a time to rest and get away and Rest. In fact, I think most often you hear people using the word rest as a verb, something I need to go and do. I just need to rest and relax. But I find that with myself and what I see in our church is that it's hardly ever a state of being. I am at rest. It's always something that we have to go and do. We have to do rest. How do you do that? How is it restful if it's something that you're doing? The reason we talk about rest is because, as we remember from our first week, the goal of creation was rest. And we know from that, and then what we'll hear in several weeks when we get to our last kingdom, that rest is what heaven is. If rest is the goal, then then what should we be about now? Again, we're hardly ever at rest. It's, I need to go and do rest. And what is it that causes this in us? I mean, what comes between us and being at rest? Because when I look at my life, I I see busyness. And I would argue that it's mostly good things. I I think I have most of my priorities in order. I'm not trying to be arrogant. I'm just saying that most of what I do are good things, and things that even will have eternal value. It's not just morally right, but they have a lasting eternal value. Value. I believe in Randy Alcorn, right? We, we teach that class, and, and that is a resounding gong in the back of my head for what I do. But I find that even in the, me doing things of eternal value, my motive is often to stay busy so that I'm not lazy. I have a perception from particularly when I was younger that people view me as lazy. And I don't want to be viewed as lazy now. I want to earn my value in other people's eyes. I want to earn value even in my eyes. And if I'm not busy producing something, learning something, building something, providing something, actively doing something, then I'm not valuable. I think the most difficult part is that there's little in my busy life that I should just stop doing. Because they're good things. They're things that God has made for me to do. He has prepared good works for me to do. And so the answer for for rest for the Christian is not simply to do less. The answer, we'll get to that in a minute. When I see our church, when I look at us together, I, I see different variations on this theme. I see misguided priorities, I see us who, instead of waiting patiently, we go ahead of God, and we take what we want. I see those of us who do not trust God, those of us who neglect his word. I see us who who worship our children. I see us who neglect the body for activity or for comfort. I see us who don't trust God's word for our finances. I see us who worship our jobs for meaning, for value. And we are broken, and we are not at rest. In brokenness, and even not being at rest, the good things of God are here. They are present. They are in mine and in your possession, and yet somehow we are still not at rest. How is it that we have the things of God and God Himself as believers in the New Testament church age with the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and we are not at rest? How does that happen? How can we be a people at rest? The big idea for today, if I want you to walk away with anything, is this. Rest is found only in the one that we can trust. Rest is found only in the one we can trust. The answer is not for me to do less. Yes, I should as a faithful husband. Father, and Pastor, make sure that I'm constantly checking my priorities. But the answer is not for me to do less. The answer is for me to find rest in the one that I can trust. And in trusting him, I find myself in a state of being, not a state of doing. As we heard all last week and all during Gospel Fluency, Our doing comes from our being. You can't do rest if you are not at rest. Paul Tripp says this You can rest in the knowledge that your Father is wise, powerful, gracious, holy, and faithful. And his rule is bigger than all the responsibilities and the opportunities and even the obstacles that you could ever face. That is how we can find ourselves at rest. One of the challenges in preaching through this series is always keeping Christ in front of you, as we see that Christ is the fulfillment of every stage that we're preaching through. At the same time, recognizing and understanding the place in history and what's going on in the scriptures where we're at this is, I think, most difficult in last week and this week. So having moved through the pattern and the fall and then into the promised kingdom, we saw with Abraham and the promise that was to come of a creation redeemed and at rest, and then we enter into the actual ongoing activity of human nature. And so from last week through today, why, are we, why does this take two weeks to cover the partial kingdom? It's just a massive component of the scriptures. We're going from roughly Genesis 15 all the way through the end of 2 Kings. That's a lot of ground to cover, and more importantly, that's a lot of history to cover. And I think for our purposes today, as we look at what this means for us, that's a lot of generations to cover. And we see generations come and go, come and go, come and go. And what we see in every single one of those is some sort of pattern. And so it's important for us to follow and understand these patterns. I mean, just in the partial kingdom, it took a whole week to speak to the biblical theme here of just being the people of God. And the way, again, that we understand God's kingdom is God's people, and God's place, under God's rule and blessing. If you are not God's people and you are not in God's place and you are not under God's rule, then you are under curse, which we'll be talking about some today. But the concept of God's people alone is just an enormous like th- rope, chain, it's huge running through the scriptures and specifically in this section of the Old Testament I mean these people as Matt said last week were orphans There was a- no hope in this world and what do we find them doing? always grasping for hope in it they had no hope but they always kept looking. I just watched The Dark Knight Rises again. So, yeah. um, just let you know on the a secret there. Uh, just watched The Dark Knight Rises again. And when Bane, if, I know you've all seen it, so I'm just going to run with this. When Bane drops Batman off in prison, he doesn't want him to die immediately. He doesn't want him to, to be just put away. What he wants him to have is a shred of hope right? A shred of hope. A shred of hope is all we need to keep going, and it tortures us even more. And that's what's happening here with the people of God, is they have no hope. They were dead. They are dead. They are in slavery. There's no hope. And yet they always grasp and look for more hope. And so for our purposes, if we want to understand what does the partial kingdom mean for us today, yes, we're going to look at Christ in the Scriptures. Yes, we want to see the redemption of these things and their consummation. But So that by the time we get to the consummation, you'll be like, I've heard all this already. I know it. We've been looking at it. Well, for us today, we need 1 Corinthians 10 to understand our passage today. Starting in verse 1, it says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all baptized— I'm sorry, We're all under the cloud— And all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was who? Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. And they were overthrown in the wilderness. The word for overthrown has this tendency of a catastrophe. The picture that he's painting is the bodies were literally strewn throughout the wilderness. An entire generation died in the wilderness and the desert. They were overthrown. Why? Now these things took place as examples for us. Verse 6. That we might not desire evil as they did. And so what? Verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test. Christ to the test. This is in the Old Testament he's referring to. As some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example But they were written down for what? For our instruction. On whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now for some reason we don't remember any of that passage. This is the only one that we remember. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape. That you may be able to endure it. (coughs) And how do we learn that lesson? the previous 12 verses don't grumble don't desire evil don't be idolaters don't indulge in sexual immorality oh, but God will provide a way he did stop trying to create new things because what's the solution therefore what's the therefore therefore my beloved flee from idolatry So for us today, if we're going to understand this aspect of the partial kingdom, we've seen the people of God, and we have to see that continue to play out today. We're primarily going to be talking about the place, and then tagging on some more rules, just like he did last week with the law. Because there's really four snapshots of time in this specific timeline. I don't want you to get lost. I want to try to set up where we're going for you. There are tons of subpoints in all this that me as a teacher wants to just like hammer all these. The first time I preached this, I think I read like three pages of scripture and that was my sermon. Um, there's lots I want to say here. And so I tried my best to boil it down to four little hangers of snapshots of what's going on in the partial kingdom. And so we're going to step back into last week with Matt. And first of all, we saw the multiplication and slavery in Egypt, Right. joseph goes down to egypt due to the famine and we see the israelites multiply and be placed into slavery ultimately then we see the exodus and sinai event the leaving and the giving of the law right that's your second snapshot then we have the glory that we're going to see today of israel particularly under the rule of david and solomon And then finally, we're going to see the kingdom dismantled and heading into exile. And that exile is where we'll pick up next week with the prophesied kingdom. And so today, what we're going to do is try to marry together this idea of 1 Corinthians 10 with these different snapshots of where the Israelites are. And to do that, we first of all see the people of God. I just want to refresh our minds very quickly on the people of God from last week. We're told to quit trying to be God's people. Only God can make a people for himself. He calls Abraham his own. Then he calls his Israelites. And he makes them a people by drawing them out of Egypt, by being their God, giving them the law, and creating a people for himself in Exodus and in the Sinai. And then we're going to see him turn them into the greatest nation on earth, particularly under the rule of Solomon as a kingdom of people in their land. But then we're going to see again that they are dismantled. And so he's making a people for himself. But even as we're going to see this week, as they fall apart, they're still his people. They're still his people. Why is that important? Because salvation, this being a people of God, as he said last week, is not because of works. Salvation is because of him who calls I mean, this has huge implications for how we respond to God's rule because God is protecting his covenant promises. He covenanted with Abraham, saying, You will be my people. I will make you as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. And even as they grow and even as they fall, whether in slavery or in exile, he maintains his covenant promises. We're also told that God will make himself a people as one dies in the place of another. We see in several different snapshots that are presented that it comes through his beautiful and glorious exclusive work in salvation, and it's by substitution. Whether it's Isaac on the altar, whether it's the lamb on the doorpost in Egypt, it's by substitution, whether it's in the tabernacle with the Levites. And the thing is, is we still think that we have to get all the pieces of our lives back together before we run to God. The answers he gave for why we do that is because we think that God saves by something other than substitution. I think that I can find rest by something other than substitution. I think that I can find value by something other than substitution. Why do we have to hide our sin? We think that we can when we try to justify it, when we're slow to call it sin, when repentance is infrequent. We are the people of God. Done. By what? By grace. That's going to be the fundamental thing these people forget as we see today in our time they forget that they're the people of God. They forget that they're the people of God. God has made the Israelites his people as an identity. He gives them the rule, the law, this relationship that he talked about last week at Sinai. And in in the land, they hear it again. He's given them relationship as his people. And so living, as we saw last week, as God's people, requires living under his rule. And we live outside the law so often and wonder why we aren't experiencing life and blessing. What does Jesus have to say about following the law? He says that the law can be summed up in the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Number two, love your neighbors as yourself. Upon this, all the law and the prophets hinge. What are the implications for that in the way that we live our life? How would following those two things affect our life? When we think about how that affects our finances, what is the word of God? What is the rule of God? What does living under His rule as His people concerning our finances? What does He have to say? It's more blessed to give than to receive. Those of you that take care of the least of these might be entertaining angels. Those who do not give what is due to me are robbing me. Let I me mean, think about marriage. Is your marriage selfish? Are you concerned about the other person, the spouse that you are united with, one flesh with? Are you loving your neighbor, yourself, as yourself? What does it look like in the way that you care for other people's marriages? We're so, so wrapped up in in concern for our own marriages, and rightly so. But we forget the fact that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're responsible for each other's marriages too. I've seen four marriages fall apart in my Facebook friend circle over the past year. One of which I was very close with for an extended time. That's heartbreaking. But the people that are around them are responsible for helping them with their marriage. I keep going. What about with, with related sex? Pornography is one of the worst offenses of love for neighbor that we can possibly have in our culture, let alone what it means for your spouse, let alone what it means for the church. You think about parenting. Do you love your kids as neighbors? Or do you love them as possessions? A friendship. How do, you, how do you view friendship? Do you love the Lord your God by caring for your friends? Do you exercise good friendship? Do you find people that you are willing to have a David and Jonathan covenant friendship with? That's one of the greatest blessings of being an elder in our church and bringing on and Greg into that. There's good friendship there. We love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We don't expect things of them that we're not willing to do ourselves. Our expectations are in check. We have a common mission, a unity in that. And at work. Is your job just provision or are you about care for your neighbor, about bringing the gospel to the place that is dark? You see, all of this is not just stuff that we try to do. It's a matter of being. Being under God's rule. In relationship with him because we're his people. But ultimately, and even just now in my own heart as I was bringing these before you, God's rule reveals our inadequacy. The law was never intended to be the means by which anyone gets right with God. I'm quoting Matt all over the place right now. They're already His people by His grace through faith before the law. Before Sinai. Before He gave them the law, they were His people. That's an incredible point for us to register. Because we take the law and use that to try to be His people. But their response is obedience. As a response to salvation, not for salvation. That's how we enjoy blessing in the covenant people of God. And God's rule reveals the heart of God. So all this is is fantastic, right? We're the people of God. We've been through the Exodus. We've been at Sinai. He gives us His rule. We can live under His rule and find blessing. And everything seems awesome, right? Now it's time to go what? What? to the land. They don't have a place. They're God's people under God's rule. They don't have a place. And what is God's place? God's place is the place of rest and trust. God's place is the place of rest and trust. You see, once the law had been given and the tabernacle established God's presence with them. And the Israelites were God's people under God's rule enjoying the blessing that came from his presence with them. But they were a people without a land. And so we find ourselves in numbers. And what do we find in numbers? We find success, people ready to go from the mountain to the land. We're his people. We have his rule. He is tabernacle with us. Let's go go? What do we find? No, we don't find that. We find that the people set out and God marches out in front of them in a pillar of cloud and fire and everything goes wrong. A march that should have taken just a few months to get to the Jordan and cross into the land takes 40 years. GPS was recalculating for a long time. Why? The people grumbled. They grumbled. They just... Left the mountain. They saw the manifest presence of God. And they grumbled. Ultimately, when they do get to the land, to the Jordan, they're convinced that they will be destroyed. They get to the land, the spies go in, and they're convinced that they will be destroyed. And what do they say? We'd be better off back in Egypt. be better off back in egypt their response shows not just only a terrible ingratitude but also unbelief unbelief these are the same sins of eve what does eve do with the fruit we're not even allowed to touch it no he said don't eat we're not even allowed to touch it makes god's rules worse Ingratitude gratitude for what he's given them. Horse blinders only on the forbidden fruit, forgetting all the provision God has given them. Forgetting everything that he's provided. In gratitude, but also unbelief. Surely you will not die. Don't believe his words. The Israelites corporately manifest the same sins of Eve. And despite all the evidence of God's power that they had seen when he delivered them from Egypt, the people will not trust him. God forbid we find ourselves in a seat where God, if you would give me a sign, I will trust you. Jesus says that the people see signs and they still don't believe. Our faith doesn't come from sight. It doesn't come from signs. It comes from trusting the word. God said, go, I am with you. They said, no, you're not. So how does God respond? God responds by judging them. As we saw in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, When we think about this warning to us. The faiths of the Israelites were a warning to us. How should we respond? How should we respond? If God's place is the place of rest and trust, then how should we respond to this? Because Paul is encouraging us in this. If we have faith in Christ, then we too have been set free from slavery. Slavery to sin, not to Egypt. How? By a Passover sacrifice of Jesus, not a lamb. And we've been sent on a journey to the promised land, to heaven, not to Canaan. And so we have to make sure that we do not fall because of sin and unbelief, but that we keep trusting God until we reach the destination. When He says, Go, I am with you, we say, Until the end of the age. That's what Jesus promised. I want to speak very quickly to the corporate nature of the judgment and then of our church journey together. And notice that when we look at 1 Corinthians 10, he said he was not pleased with most of them. Hashtag understatement, right? All but two. All but two. An entire generation. You can go through numbers and find up what the numbers are. All of them but two. not enter the promised land, including Moses. There's a corporate nature that I don't think that we can avoid when we think about persevering together. Similar to the same way that we need to be watching each other's marriages, caring for each other's children, investigating each other's jobs, caring for each other's friendships. There's a corporate punishment multitudes of times for the Israelites, whether it's the snakes in the wilderness to the punishments of pestilence, to the loss of a generation. I think there are times in a church's history where we have lost generations. Not all but two. But a great deal of people are in darkness because we have not cared well for each other. We must be a church that cares for each other. We have to, as uh, Paul will say, I believe, keep in step with the Spirit together our perseverance is not based on any one of us Caleb and Joshua were just fine let's do it let's go we can do it and if it were just up to them they would they should have trusted God and God through the leaders that they 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 had picked And they would not have lost an entire generation. If we, if we want to find rest, then we would be fools not to heed this devastating warning of God. We read through it so quickly because we've seen it on so many felt boards in Sunday school. An entire generation died at the feet of the promised land. Let us not be people that missed the promised land in our last couple steps. Persevere and keep in step. God's place is the place of rest and trust. The subpoint for this then is that loving and trusting God means obedience for us. Loving and trusting God means obedience for us. So we go through numbers and we see Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is at the very brink of the land at the river Jordan. Moses' final speech is addressed to the New Generation. If he was addressing New Testament believers, he would say something like this Now it's up to you to believe and obey, to live in the light of the gospel when you enter the land, right? What did gospel mean for them there? In Deuteronomy 7 6 uh, and 10, 12 through 13, I have these things. You can get these from me later or on Renovate Us. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people his treasured possession chapter 10 and now O israel what does the lord your god ask of you but to fear the lord your god to walk in all his ways to love him to serve the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the lord's commands why can jesus say that it hangs on this because he says, you are my people, and what do I ask of you? This. This. What does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear of the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands. So the stakes are high. <laughs> the stakes are high. Loving and trusting God means obedience for us. Because if we are not obedient... And we are not loving, and we are not trusting God. And we are fools to think that we are. But our heart is so quick to deceive us. Our heart is so quick to deceive us, just as it did with Eve. And what happened after the fall? She hid. The relationship was broken. Adam hid. The relationship was broken. The stakes are high. On the one hand, if they obey, then they'll be blessed. In 28.1, it says, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands that I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. And on the other hand, 28.15, If you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Why are there blessings and curses? our world, that's not going to make sense. I understand if, if you don't give me the blessings if I don't obey or if I don't love you. I understand that I don't get it if I don't do the work. But if I don't do that, why do I get instead curse? That doesn't make sense to me. Well, because our world does not operate in covenant. God operates in covenant love to Not obey the rule is to not be in covenant relationship because you're his people. To obey the covenant is to be under his rule because you're his people. And so the blessings go for 14 verses, 1 through 14. The curses go from verse 15 to 64. That's pretty severe. How many of us have read that? This is a pretty important paragraph, eight paragraphs or whatever it is, for believers, if we want to understand what covenant relationship looks like, covenant responsibility looks like. This is the warning of Moses at the end of his life to all the Israelites. Because this list that follows is awful. And it should fill them and us with dread. The dangers of disobeying God. Especially if Paul tells us in First Corinthians 10 that this is an example for us. Because this curse list culminates in a promise that God will evict them from the promised land. Verse 63, and as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you, and you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. It closes with this horrifying verse. The Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone which neither you nor your fathers have known. So I believe it goes on. There's another verse that says that you will return by boat to the place that I promised you you will not return to. And you will try to sell yourself as slaves in Egypt and no one will buy you. It's a complete reversal of the fundamental and foundational salvation event of the Old Testament. For the Israelites to be brought back into Egypt and and not even be able to be slaves anymore, but to be less than slaves. It's a complete reversal of the salvation event of the Old Testament in the Exodus. And so the big question mark hovers over the Israelites as they enter into this land. How will they live when they get there? Will they keep the covenant and prosper? Or will they disobey and be expelled from the land? Joshua. The conquest. They defeat the former inhabitants and take possession of the land for themselves. And they do so, right? As they do so, they are left in no doubt that the conquest is not a victory they can claim for themselves. How'd you bring down Jericho? Awesome, awesome plan. I mean, we just figured we'd walk for a while. It's good for us. Heart pumping. Then we blow the trumpets really loud like it's it's Susa, right? And we're just going to play as loud as we possibly can, and dude, the walls, all of them coming down, I we just walk right in. I mean, they didn't plan for that in their blueprints, but we found them, and it says that if you walk around, then we can do this. No doubt, my plan, let's go, Joshua, you're the man. That's exactly how it went down. It's in, it's in one of the Bibles. Um, no, there's no possible way that could have happened apart from God. There's no possible way. They are left with no doubt. No doubt. There's nothing that they can claim for themselves. Martin Roberts notes this from the book that we we are using, God's big picture. Our modern ears, as they go into the land, are disturbed by God's command to the Israelites to destroy the former inhabitants of the land. I mean, it sounds like ethnic cleansing, he says. But it's important for us as we see that this God is moving them into the land, accomplishes all the victory, and tells them to wipe out everyone. But we understand that it's not by racial prejudice. Here's the reasoning from Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 9. He says this, It is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. On account of what? Their race? No. Their culture? No. Their practices? Yes. Their wickedness. On account of the wickedness of these nations, he knows that his holy people will be corrupted by such evil if it's allowed to stay in the land. That's exactly what eventually happens. The Israelites fail to obey the command to destroy the Canaanites fully, and they remain a corrupting influence on them for many, many years. But for us, we need to, again, recognize that Joshua ends on a high note. I mean, it is a time of fulfillment. Listen to this in Joshua 21. The Lord gave Israel what? All the land. All the land. All the land that he had sworn to give their forefathers. And they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their forefathers. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. That's incredible. We're there. We're God's people. We have his rule. And we're in our home. We're in our home. We've never had a land. We've never had a land. Even Abraham got the bad side of the field. We've never had a land. We're home. Kind of. (laughs) Look at Joshua's warning. In chapter 23, he says this same thing that Moses said. If you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, they're already a problem. Then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Listen to this. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. And so the question mark remains, will they obey God? How long will they be able to stay in the land? Everything seems to be right. It's fulfilled. We're in God's place. We're his people. We have his rule. We're in relationship with him, and we find blessing in that. But we allowed some things to remain. But we can handle them. That is the resounding gong I hear in pastoral ministry. I know that's not great, but I can handle it. I know this is, this shouldn't be really in my life, but I, I see it. I know it's there. I'm good. I understand. I'm, I'm fighting that. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Drive it from the land. You cannot handle it. It will corrupt you. Your marching orders are clear. Get rid of it. Loving and trusting God means obedience for us. Not hanging on to aspects of the old flesh. Just because it's there, just because it's tied to me, and I can't get rid of it, doesn't mean that I embrace it. We get rid of it. If we want to find rest, then we must love and trust God, and that means obedience. If we want blessing, else we get curse. So, we're in the land. All of the promises have been fulfilled. Catch that again. All of them. Not one of all the promises, of the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel, failed. Every one was fulfilled. That's why we call it the partial kingdom, right? How is this partially fulfilled then? Because it's not forever, is it? Because the promised kingdom is a forever kingdom. Let's go look at another component of this. God's rule. God's king. We want to talk about loving and trusting God and how it means obedience for us. We find that it's enforced by something. God's rule is enforced by something, God's king. I mean, why are we talking about a king? Well, in Genesis 3:15, he says this, "He will crush your head." That's important. There are two like surprising things that happen in Genesis, uh, one through three, that I think we move past too quickly. One, Eve eats the fruit. What should be the next thing? What were we told would happen? And Eve died. They buried her in the Garden of Eden under another tree, right? That's not what happens. So the death that was promised was a different death, right? That should surprise us if we're decent readers of literature. What he said would happen did not, right? Here's the next thing. The serpent crusher. Why is he talking about a, a serpent crusher? We need to find out who this guy is. I want back in the garden. There are flaming sword angels with lightsabers there. Not letting me back in. This serpent crusher will let me back in. Where's the serpent crusher? They've not talked about him. They've not talked about him. We are in Joshua, heading into Judges. Where's the serpent crusher? Genesis 49.10 The scepter will not depart from Judah. Wait, what? Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet? This is in Genesis 49. Why are we talking about kings? Until he comes to whom it will belong, and the obedience of the nations is his. Ruling the nations? Deuteronomy 28:36. The Lord will bring you and your king, whom you've set over you to a nation that neither. We read that earlier. He's going to bring our nation that has a king that we've set over us to another nation in exile this is in Deuteronomy 28 we're not even in the land yet Moses what's this king language you're talking about Deuteronomy 17 again same, same speech when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and taking possession of it and settling in it and you say this let us set a king over us like all the nations around us Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. Whatever king you choose and set above yourself, by the way, you're going to do that. He needs to write out the entire law. Why? It is to be with him. And he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law this is not a surprise if we've been reading scripture well there's a king we're going to have a king we were always meant to have a king but the king was not to be an authority separate from god instead he would rule under god submitting to him and his law he may learn to revere the lord his god and follow carefully all the words of this law See the promise of a king is really a subset of the promise of God's rule and blessing. God rules in His kingdom by means of a king, and that's important for us as we go forward through the rest of the series, as we recognize that kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule, and that rule is instituted with a king. The king is an important component of this. So, how is then this important for us when we think about fulfillment? This is partial. How is a king a partial fulfillment, and what would the true fulfillment look like? Well, let's find it in our next section. Rest is found in godly authority and unity. Rest is found in godly authority and unity. Let's see what this kingship issue looks like for them, and we'll see how it affects us, because 1 Corinthians 10 this is for us, right? Judges, a cycle of sin and grace. You see, the story of the Israelites in the promised land and in the years after the death of Joshua, it makes for really depressing reading, as Von Roberts said. Again, hashtag understatement. Really depressing reading. The people don't do anything right for the most part. The people do not heed the warnings of Moses. They do not heed the warnings of Joshua. And it's not, again, that they just don't obey, but instead they rebel. We have to understand that it is rebellion to not obey. That should change the way that we view our lives. We don't just fail to obey, we rebel. That's different than just messing up. We rebel. What does the cycle look like? Hopefully you've heard this before from our um, surveys and other things, but the cycle is this through two judges multiple times. The Israelites turn from God to serve other gods. How does God respond? He judges them, and he allows them to be defeated by their enemies. Then they cry out to the Lord for help, and he responds by raising up a judge or a ruler. Then these judges defeat the enemies in the power of God's Spirit, and restore peace to the land, but it never lasts for long. And the people soon turn away from God again, and the cycle's repeated. Every generation. We've we seen generation issues like that before. If you want to see a little vignette of that, go to Judges 3 and begin in verse 7 through 12. You'll see exactly that cycle in story form. I don't have time for it today. But look at this generational cycle. What was the plan for the generational cycle? Deuteronomy 6, you will tell your children these things that I have commanded you. You will help them learn to love and obey. You will do it as you walk, as you lay, as you go by the way, as you do everything you will teach the next generation. That's not happening here. Every generation has a different cycle. And so the natural question we should ask if we're good readers of Scripture, is that why should God bother to save the Israelites after their continued disobedience? After one cycle, two cycles, three cycles, four cycles, five. There's six major cycles in Judges, and other smaller ones inside of that. Why does he continue to save the Israelites? I mean, the Judges are a great sign of God's grace, but they're not an adequate solution to the problems of Israel. They're certainly not Sunday school heroes. I mean, Jephthah likely sacrifices his own daughter to God, Samson is a, a womanizing thug. And so while we can praise God for the deliverance that he achieved through these often pretty fallen leaders, we should be longing for a better leader. We should be longing for a better leader who will bring about a lasting solution to the problem for, of Israel's sin. I mean, they, we, we should be longing for a king. We should be longing for a king. Four times throughout Judges, this is the resounding theme you hear. And it's the last verse that it closes with. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. That is the essence of living outside the rule of God. Because rest is found in godly authority and unity so in your life is there a resounding theme of I did as I saw fit I did as I saw fit I didn't appeal to my king I didn't appeal to my authority I did as I saw fit never mind the fact that the heart is incredibly deceptive it's deceitful desperately wicked but I I just do as I see fit do you have a king do you submit to your authority or do you do as you see fit loving God the greatest commandment and loving your neighbor as yourself you can't do as you see fit it doesn't work doing as you see fit is self-serving And we miss the entire point of the law, the entire point of the rule of God. So Israel had no king. How do we get a king? In 1 Samuel, Samuel is known as the greatest judge of the judges to rule Israel. But as he is older, he appoints his sons and they do a horrible job. And so the elders of Israel demand that he appoint a king to rule them. In 1 Samuel 8, 5, you have these awful words, such as all the other nations have. God's not angry with them for their request to have a king. They should be looking for a king. We should desire to have a king. He's upset not because they want a king, but because of their motivation and asking for one. They want a king instead of God. Why? Because their desire is to be like the other nations. They don't want a king under God. They want a king instead of God. They're rejecting God's kingship over them. And that's the thing that made them unique. They're his people. They want a monarchy instead of a theocracy. And so despite their sinfulness, God gives them a king. And Saul is anointed as king, even though he was hiding in the baggage when it was time. The people are not blessed during his reign. Why? This is not a difficult sermon. Blessings and curses by living under the rule or not. The people are not blessed because Saul persistently disobeys God. For Samuel 15:23, "Because you have rejected the word of the Lord. What was the king supposed to do? when they became king, they were supposed to sit down and write out their own copy of the law, so that they might what read from it every day and learn to fear the Lord and trust his commands. And what does Saul do? Because you've rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you as king. And so the focus is now on David, who's already been anointed as Saul's heir. And just as Jesus is to discover many years later, being the Lord's anointed one does not guarantee a smooth passage through life. Saul is jealous of David and tries to kill him. And so we enter into 2 Samuel and we see the reign of David. David follows the rules of God. David, of course, has Bathsheba and, and many other sins. Obviously, that one is pretty bad. There are others. <laughs> David is a fallen man. But he's still a man after God's own heart. He follows the rule of God. He moves, uh, or maintains at least the Jerusalem as capital, establishes that in, in the extreme, and peace is secured in the land. If you read more on the kingship of Israel... Peace is supposed to be one of the major markers of rightful kingship for Israel. And he finds peace. Peace is secured. The ark, symbolizing God's presence and rule, is brought into the city of God. David rules, not independently of God, but under him. And Israel has never enjoyed such peace and prosperity. But still, the time of fulfillment has not come. This is still a partial Fulfillment. Why? Because David is not the serpent crusher. Already, we probably forgot that we're supposed to be looking for the serpent crusher. I just mentioned it ten minutes ago. David's not the serpent crusher. There is still one greater to come. And that's made clear through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 7. From here on, we're waiting for the arrival of God's king, the son of David. The kingdom of God must be established by him the Messiah, or the Greek word the Christ. And so we find ourselves in 1 Kings chapter 1-11 through and we see Solomon in the golden age. Solomon succeeds David and it is good. It is good. It is good. He brings security and prosperity. The temple is actually built during his reign, providing an enormous, permanent, symbolic dwelling place for God. The nation has never had it So good. I mean, we have reached the pinnacle of the Old Testament in 1 Kings 1-11. through It looks like the promises of God have been fulfilled. They already were explicitly, right, in Judges, or in Joshua, and it's gotten better. This has got to be it. We have got to be there. Solomon even says this at the dedication of the temple. He prays, Praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. 1 Kings 8. God's people are in God's place under God's rule and are enjoying God's blessing. Why is it partial? It's not a forever kingdom. There's no serpent crusher. They found rest. How do they find rest? Under godly authority. Under unity together. Guys, what does rest look like for us? Find rest under godly authority and unity. As one of your authorities, we want your good. We want your good. Occasionally we're selfishly motivated, but we still want your good even in that. I confess that. We want your good. We care for you. You'll find rest. Even when we're wrong, you're trusting the Father, not us. The Father will take care of you under your authority in this place. You're a person under authority at work. And even when your boss is wrong, even when he mistreats you, your trust is not in him. It's in God. You will find rest even in mistreatment. You're a person under authority at home. Students, even when your parents don't do it right, and speaking as a parent, we don't do it right. Your trust is not in us, it's in God. You'll find rest. The church is in unity. We're not united in each other, we're united in our king. We have a king. A king, as we see in Ephesians chapter 1, has everything placed under his feet. He's the great king. He's the serpent crusher. He's the one who is sovereign over all. He's, in fact, the, people, the one that called you to be his people. He's the one that brought you to life when you were not just struggling in the water, reaching for a life raft, but you were dead at the bottom of the lake. He cares for you. And he's united us with him and united us together in him. That's our king. That's our rest. That's our value. Whatever it is that you struggle with that keeps you from rest. He is it. And Too often we settle for the partial. If you ask any of these people in Israel at this time, you want to stay here? the answer is going to be yes this is as good as it gets and that's what we say you want to stay here yeah this is as good as it gets and we forget that there's a promised land to come a king that will rule over everything reminds me of this partial fulfillment I really want to hammer that part home that's where we are we're happy where we're at and we have entirely too low expectations of our relationship with God and with our relationship with each other. One of the most heartbreaking aspects of pastoring for me, and then also just my spiritual journey, because I see it's just mirrors, mirrors as I walk with you and you walk with me. I, I see myself in you. The parable of the seed. Not a main point of the, of the text. The main point of the text is how the gospel, the seed, is received, Right? At the end of the parable, it talks about the good soil. When the gospel, when the seed lands in the good soil and it brings forth a harvest, that's the point, it brings forth a harvest, right? But there's an implication to that too. Some a hundredfold return, some 60, and some 30. In the main story, the 30 is still saved, just as saved as the 60 is the 100. But most of us are, I think, all too happy to remain in the 30% return of the field because we're happy there. We're partially fulfilled. We could have 100 if we trusted God. If we walked closer with him, if we found a rest in him rather than in trying to find our own value. When I try to find my value in what I do, I'm experiencing 30% of the grace, as it were, of God. You can take this par- this analogy too far. You want to experience the full grace of God? Trust. Find rest in him. Don't be satisfied with the partial fulfillment, because it won't last. In first Kings twelve through the end of Second Kings, we see disobedience, division, and decline. For David's sake, God delays his judgment until after Solomon dies. But then he causes he causes civil war to break out, and the kingdom begins to disintegrate kingdom proves not to be eternal. It's dismantled. See, there's very little evidence that they are God's people. They're not in God's place, and they ultimately find themselves in exile. And they face the curse of God's judgment rather than his blessing. One of the bright parts of the decline of Israel is when the king of Judah, I believe, accidentally finds a copy of the word of the God in the temple and goes, we should do this. And he brings about reform and that's one of the the shining moments, but then it, it still dies. The king accidentally finds a copy. The king was supposed to have his own copy. That's one of the bright spots. That's where the partial fulfillment ultimately goes. You see, God has warned them It's as if the falls happened all over again. God warned them before they entered the promised land that they would be evicted if they did not obey Him. But they rejected His rule, and as a result, they're banished from His presence. God's work among the Israelites was never intended to be the final fulfillment of the gospel promises. The partial kingdom was glorious. There's a great multitude of people that want to get back to that time even now. It was glorious but it was just a shadow of the perfect kingdom that God will establish through Jesus Christ. Don't be satisfied in the partial fulfillment, guys. It points beyond itself to him. It's just a model. It's just a one sixteenth representation of the real thing that you can build with glue. But it will fall apart. It doesn't even work. It just looks like it. It points beyond itself to the real Yes, it was great for the Israelites to be rescued from slavery to the Egyptians, but that rescue is just a pale shadow of the perfect redemption achieved by Jesus on the cross. Yes, it was wonderful for the Israelites to have God's presence in their midst, in the tabernacle, and even more in the temple. But those structures were just shadows of the one in whom the presence of God was made perfectly manifest. John tells us that the word is, became flesh and made his dwelling he tabernacled among us and yes david and solomon were great kings but jesus is far greater see the prophets are going to go on to stress that the decline of israel and judah were not out of god's control he was at work dismantling this model because of the sin of his people but it's not the end God is never going to rebuild the model again. What he's going to do and has done is establish the real thing in and through Jesus. We're going to see the cries for that next week in the prophesied kingdom. But take today, take last week, and look at the generations, generations, generations. What are your responsibilities as a generation? Are you fulfilling them? Are you obeying them? What does that mean? Find rest. What's the goal of creation? Find rest. Amongst busyness, God has prepared works for you to do that you may walk. The great commission, God demands obedience. Disciples, to the things that he has commanded you. The great commission, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. We're created to do. We can't do rest. We are at rest. And when we do that, when we be that, then we will find true rest and we will be the generation that we didn't see. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for your care, for your kindness. Father, let us not flippantly miss such a great warning from Paul. Let us not bypass this stern warning of curse. Father, rescue us from our futility. There are so many things I want to find my value in that aren't you. Me as the creature, I want to create and, and make my own things to give me value Father you have given me everything I need you have made me fearfully and wonderfully made in your image Father there's nothing greater that I could be Father thank you for uniting us to your son Father as we prayed at the beginning of today let us never be satisfied with our progress but only as we resemble your Son. Father, mold us into conformity with your principles and your conduct. Father, let us come on Sunday to be encouraged, but also willing to work, ready to fight. And Father, we're ready and willing to grow hourly. Father, wake us up from our tendency to grow by season and not to, with vigor, chase after you. Father, I fear many of us are just in the race in such a way as to win. That's the way that I always ran, just to finish, not to win. And Father, help us run to win, not just to finish. Father, thank you for giving us so much more than just what appears to be the partial fulfillment. But God, you've given us everything in your son. Let us find rest in him. Let us be at rest in him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.